0: Amen, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you love them in Jesus' name. And if you have your Bibles tonight, I'd like to open them with me to the book of Revelation. And uh, we're looking at Revelation chapter number 1. And uh, for those of you that maybe are just joining us for the first time, several weeks ago we began a study through the book of Revelation. And we are still very much in the embryonic stages of this study. Um, We just spent the last three weeks really unpackaging the introduction to this very powerful book. Uh, Both the external introduction and the internal uh, introduction. The external being more of the historical context of this book. And also looking extensively at the various ways that uh, the book of Revelation can be interpreted. And again, we are interpreting this through a future uh, view. We, we see the events of Revelation chapters 4 all the way through chapter 22 as being in the future. Uh, not everyone sees it that way, but that is the interpretation that we take here at Bethel. And so that was the very first week, an external introduction to the book. And the next two weeks was the internal introduction In other words, the introduction that is provided by the book itself, that is found from verses 1-6. through And it took a couple of weeks for us to get through that. Um, And so having done that, cleared that, we're going to move on here tonight. Now, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know that it is filled with drama. It is filled with suspense. It is filled with mystery, passion, horror. There is love there is judgment, there is war, apostasy, a great falling away from the faith, there's wrath, escalating suffering to the point of it becoming eternal for an incalculable number of the lost. Um, And yet, as terrifying as all of that imagery is, still there is healing, there is deliverance, there is salvation, there are promises made, restoration that takes place, and ultimately it culminates in the victory of Jesus Christ and the victory to those who put their faith in Christ alone. And again, if you've ever read this book, you know that it is going to take a very long time for that story to unfold before us. And so through the Holy Spirit, John gives us, if you will, a trailer of things to come. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 are actually giving us a snapshot. They're giving us a summary, um, a preview of what is to unfold over the next 22 chapters. And you can listen to it right there in verse number 7. He says, Behold, He is coming with clouds And every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty." And so this again provides us a trailer, a preview of things to come over the next 22 chapters. And they're all pertaining to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the highlighted event of the book of Revelation. First of all, we see the certainty of His second coming. The certainty of the second coming. He says, Behold, he is coming. That is a certain statement. He is coming. It doesn't say that he will come, it says he is coming. The wording there is very important. Um, that word behold, you know, when we think of it, behold, it just has kind of a, a, a heavenly, angelic sound to it, but it is actually a very strong and a very powerful word. It's an imperative. Uh, it, it's in the imperative mood, is what they call it in the Greek. And it is like a command, and it is being commanded imperatively. This is very important. And what it's indicating to those who read on is that we're to stop everything that we are doing currently and we are to look and listen and pay very close attention to what is about to be said that is the idea when you read that word behold it's saying hey wake up because everything I'm about to share with you right now is so vitally important it requires your undivided attention. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're a part of right now, stop it. Because there's nothing more important than you hearing what I have uh, to say and to share with you at this moment. That is the strength of that word, behold. It's the first of 29 times the word behold is going to appear in the book of Revelation. So you think about that. There's only 22 chapters. That means that more than once a chapter, that word behold is going to show up. And so right there, it shows that the information that is shared with us in this book is of such importance that no matter what we're doing, we're supposed to stop and pay very close attention to what is to be revealed. In this case, He is coming. He's saying that deserves, it requires your undivided attention. Jesus is coming. And it's interesting too there, the wording, He is coming, is a present tense statement. It is seen as actively going on right now. He is coming, and that present tense is actually trying to convey two different thoughts to us. First of all, it is conveying that he's already on his way. Believe it or not, that's what it's conveying. He's already on his way, and as a result, his coming is certain. It gives us the idea that he's already left and he's on his way, and. Because of that, His coming is certain. And it's also conveying, and here's that word again, imminent. His coming is imminent. The imminent return of Christ. We've said this every week that we've been in this so far. As believers, we hold to the imminent return of Christ, which means we don't think that there is any other Scripture that has to be fulfilled. Christ could come at any moment. Turn to your neighbor and tell him Christ could come at any moment. So... Like, if you're out there thinking, you know, i got to see some other signs and wonders take place, that is not the case. Christ could come at any moment. We believe in the imminent return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is seen right there. He is coming. He's already on His way. And because He's already on His way, we have no idea when His arrival is going to take place. It's imminent. We are to be prepared at every moment. Uh, He is coming. That is all throughout the Word of God. There are over 500 references in the Word of God to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's estimated that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament is declaring the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is what we would say a fundamental Uh, truth to our Christian faith. As I said to you a few weeks ago, we don't all have to agree on the finer details of the second coming of Jesus Christ. But what we do have to agree on is that He is coming again. We all may look at things differently. Um, Even within this church, there might be varying ideas concerning the events surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ. We will always teach it the way I'm teaching it, but there's room even within the body of Christ to disagree on some of those points. But the one thing that all true believers hold together is that Christ is coming again. That there will be a visible return of Christ. And so that is the essential to our Christian faith. Christ is coming again. Actually, The coming one, or in some translations as it's put, the expected one, is more than just what he is doing. It's actually a title that was given to the Messiah. Uh, That's referred to uh, back when John the Baptist was in prison. You may remember he was, you know, crucified, or not crucified, his head was cut off by uh, Herod. And uh, he had a crisis of faith, if you will, for a moment. And in Matthew chapter 11, verse Verses 2 and 3, it says, When John heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples, and they said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus referred to Himself as the coming one. In John 3, in verse 31, He said, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And then at the grave of His dear friend uh, Lazarus in John chapter 11 and verse 27 Lazarus's sister Martha said to Jesus yes Lord I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is to come into the world and so it is well established all throughout the word of God that Christ would come again all throughout the word of God in fact the very first Um, prophecy in scripture concerning the second coming of Christ and in this particular case more about the future reign that the Messiah would have upon the earth is in Genesis 49 I believe it's verse number 10 when it says that the scepter will not leave um, Jerusalem or Judah um, which is obviously a shout to Israel until Shiloh has come. And Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah. And what it is just simply saying is that that the, the scepter or the authority will remain in Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah. And then he goes on to talk about how He will rule over the people. So that is the very first prophecy concerning not only the coming of the messiah but the eternal reign of the messiah that again is i believe genesis 49 and verse number 10 so it's well established and it cannot slip outside of our understanding and our awareness he is coming in jesus name turn to your neighbor and tell him he is coming the second thing we see here is the glory of his second coming In this preview, again, of Revelation, we see the glory of His second coming. He is not just coming, but He is coming, the Bible says, with clouds. Now, it's very easy just to see that and just read right over it. He's coming in clouds, and of course, He's coming through the air, and there will be clouds all around Him. But you have to understand that that is much more symbolic than it is... Um, in the physical. Certainly, He will come through the clouds, but it is symbolizing so much more. Clouds, many of you will know, are a shout-out, if you will, to how God revealed Himself to Israel on many very significant occasions in the Old Testament. Remember, God revealed His presence in a cloud In the wanderings through the wilderness. In Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22, he came as a cloud by day and a fire by night. He also revealed his presence in a cloud when he gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai. That's in Exodus 19 and verse number 16. And then again, he uh, manifested his presence in a cloud when he inhabited first the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple in Jerusalem in Exodus 40 verses 34 through 38 and first Kings 8 10 through 12 and so there are many references to the presence of God being manifested as a cloud now was God a cloud no he was just manifesting his presence as a cloud Even in the New Testament, there are references to that. Jesus ascended to the Father in Acts 1 and verse 9 before the eyes of the apostles in a cloud. And we know that when Jesus comes to rapture His church again, He will come in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 17. So clouds are always associated with the glory of God. And that's because they are symbols or they are symbolic of not just the glory of God, but what we would refer to, and some of you know this word, the Shekinah glory of God. Now we don't want to get weird here, but just Shekinah is just speaking of the visible, tangible presence of God. There were times when God revealed Himself because the Bible says that no one has seen God at any time, okay? But there were times that God would visibly and tangibly reveal His presence. And oftentimes that was in a cloud. So clouds were symbolic of that visible, tangible presence of God. The glory of His character and His nature. The brilliance and the radiance of Almighty God. That's what is being uh, seen here. So when the Bible says that He will come with clouds... Again, you know, we're not thinking of a picture with him surrounded by clouds. It's saying when he comes, he will be visible and tangible. This is a physical, visible, tangible return of Christ. It's not symbolic. When we say Christ is coming again, we're not speaking just of like a move of God. No, Christ visibly is going to return to this earth He's created. Can you say amen? That is the point that is being made. And that's what's seen next. And that is the scope of His second coming. The scope of His second coming. Every eye will see Him. Even they who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. You know, during His first coming, there were only three individuals that ever saw who Jesus truly was on this earth. Okay, And that was, of course, Peter, James, and John when He was transfigured before them. You, you know that. It was in Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, led them up on high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured. That word means He was morphed. He was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. So here is the eternal Son of God who, if you will, covers His divinity and reveals Himself in His humanity, but now He actually lays aside His humanity and to Peter, James, and John, He reveals His divinity. And they were the only ones on earth that actually saw Jesus in His glorified state. But at the second coming, Every eye will see Him as He is. Every eye will see Him as Peter, James, and John did. They will see Him in all of His glory, in all of His splendor when He returns. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but there are two groups that are actually listed here. There are those who pierced Him, and there are the tribes of the earth that will mourn at His appearing. They're two different groups. They're not the same group at all. And it's easy to think that he's talking about the same group of people, but he says, no, no, no. There are two groups that are going to see him. There are those who pierced him, and then there will be all the other tribes of the earth that will mourn. Specifically, they will mourn at His appearing. Now, some have taken this to mean that when He visibly returns, that everyone on planet Earth is actually going to see that moment when He returns. Now, is that possible? Well, we are talking about God and there is nothing impossible to Him. Okay, And if it is global, then it's miraculous when you consider the physics of the Earth because how could He physically appear on one side of the globe and we all see it on the other side of the globe? Again, I'm not saying that God can't do that. Certainly God can. But it it is highly improbable that that is what John was saying. Um, Again, I'm not saying it couldn't be. But as you look at it, it's improbable that that is what he's saying. More, it, it seems that he's talking about the fact that every man and every woman that has ever lived that is living right now and that will ever live in the future, everyone will see Jesus face to face. The atheist is going to see Jesus face to face. The most hardened um, sinner is still going to see Jesus face to face. That seems to be what he's saying. Every eye is going to behold the greatness of our Lord and Savior Savior Jesus Christ. That is inescapable. And and as inescapable as that is, it's also inescapable that anyone um, could not see all the implications that His return will bring. Now let's break it down. First of all, there is that group that pierced Him. And it would seem to me, I'm just a student and I study, I, it doesn't mean that I'm right, but this is what I have found. It would seem to me that the group he is referring to as those who pierced him is the Jewish nation. That The Jews is who he is speaking to there. And I get that from Zechariah 12 and verse number 10, a prophecy that says, and I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Listen to this. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And obviously, that is Messianic because Jesus is the Son of God and He is the firstborn from the dead. So, that would lead me to believe that when He speaks of this first group, those who pierced Him, that He is speaking of the Jewish nation and that at His appearance, it will lead many within the Jewish community to repent of their rejection of Christ and that they will receive Him as their Messiah. The Word of God, I believe, very clear that the majority of the Jewish men and women that are alive at the time of His second coming will receive Christ as their Messiah as He reveals. I'm thankful that God is a covenant-keeping God in Jesus' name. And uh, God is going to reveal His Son in such a dramatic and a powerful way that they're going to look upon Him and they are going to grieve and they're going to mourn over the fact that they rejected Him even to the point of crucifying Him upon the cross and they will repent and they will embrace Christ as their Messiah. So I I believe that's the first group. The second group, He speaks again of all the tribes of the earth that will mourn. And clearly, He is speaking of all of the Gentile nations that remain on the earth at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says specifically of them that they will mourn, but it will be a different mourning from what Israel had. Their mourning was unto repentance Their mourning is more of a selfish, um, it's a selfish awareness, if you will. Um, Even though it will be mourning, it's more likely that this mourning will be a fearful expectation of the judgment that they now know is coming upon them. When the Gentile nations see Christ come, they will know in that moment that they have been wrong all throughout their life that Christ is the King of kings, that He is the Lord of lords, that there is no other name given by which man may be saved but the name of Jesus Christ, and they will know that they have rejected Him and now having given themselves over to the worship of the Antichrist and the false prophet, they are fully aware that they will be lost for all of eternity and without hope at all. That's their mourning. This is not a mourning for repentance. This is simply a mourning over now. Judgment is sealed and there is no hope. It is is not going to be under repentance. It's an agonizing terror when they realize that they cannot escape the judgment and there's no hope of salvation for them. The reason I feel that way is because mourning there means to cut. It's the idea of being cut. And it actually is an allusion to the pagan practices of that day, when, John's day, when men and women would cut themselves or they would pierce themselves um, when they were overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. I want to walk very carefully here because we know they're hurting people in our world today, but that's what's behind cutting and piercing and people who pick at themselves and, and are self-destructive. They're so overwhelmed with sorrow, so overwhelmed with grief and anxiety that they harm themselves. They cut themselves. They, they pick at their skin because they, they have not found that hope in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you there is hope in Jesus Christ? Can I hear a hearty amen? Some of you may have even been delivered from that yourself, but that was a a occultic practice back in those days. And you see it in action in 1 Kings when Elijah the prophet actually uh, took on the prophets of Baal and said, you know what? You cry out to your gods. I'm going to cry out to my God and the gods or the God that answers with fire. That is the God of Israel. You remember this epic battle? and. all throughout the day, the prophets of Baal cried out to their gods, and and nothing, not even a spark, not even a whiff of smoke, nothing at all happened. And, and instead of these prophets of Baal being humbled and saying, Lord, you are Jehovah, and, and using that moment, no, what did they do? They now start cutting themselves and piercing themselves rather than humble themselves before God. And what happened? Judgment came because fire came down and Israel killed all of those prophets. Rather than using that moment to repent, judgment came. In the same way, what he seems to be indicating is that the majority of men and women on that planet, when they see Christ coming again, rather than being humbled will become filled with pride and arrogance and even their mourning will be more because they're being lost for eternity rather than they've rejected the love of god that is incredible to me that in the face of wrath men will still not be compelled to weep over their sin and repent but instead they'll only grieve over themselves and now they have to go to hell. You know, it gets very sober, and you'll see this as we walk through Revelation. We would all like to believe that even though hope has passed, those that are in hell, you would think would be so humbled that they would be crying out for mercy. But the Bible indicates that many will still be cursing God in hell you imagine being that hardened in your sin that rather than just pleading for mercy, you would actually continue to blaspheme God because you're so full of yourself that you cannot believe God would actually send you to hell. Man's heart is wicked and evil. That's why we need to pray that God would always keep us humble before Him in Jesus' name. Can I hear a good amen here to that? Next, we see our response to His second coming. Our response as believers to His second coming. What is it? Even so, amen. Even so, amen. I love that. Even though this is going to be a very terrifying moment for those upon this planet, uh, for those who are lost, still the response of the church when they hear of His coming should be amen. Amen. Or so be it. Um, I kind of chuckled today in my office when I read this, but a modern translation like a 2019 translation of this would be, yes! (laughs) You know, like when something goes your way, you go, yes! That's really kind of the thrust here. If, If John were saying this in 2019, he'd say, look, in spite of all of this tragedy, yes! because finally justice has won and we have received what we have patiently waited for by faith in Jesus name so our response in spite of how terrifying this moment is going to be for the lost in spite of what this means to the lost still the believer says yes this is what we've been waiting for. This is when justice finally wins and each one is rendered to them according to their deeds. Next, we see the one to be revealed at the second coming. The one to be revealed at the second coming, we know it is Jesus, but he refers to himself as I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, The Almighty." This is how Jesus refers to Himself. He says, I am coming, and I am the Alpha and Omega. Now, I think it's safe to say that even if you're not a Bible scholar, which I am not a Bible scholar either, most of you probably know that that is a reference to the Greek Alphabet. Alpha and Omega is a clear reference to the Greek alphabet because the first letter in Greek is Alpha and the last letter in the Greek language is Omega. So he is referring to, again, the Greek alphabet. And what he's saying is every single word in the human language, it doesn't matter what language you're talking about, every word in the English language, in any language, is derived from the alphabet. You could say, and I, I remember hearing a, uh, a comedian. His name was Stephen Wright. I don't know if any of you remember Stephen Wright from the 80s. He was a monotone um, comedian, and he just had these one-liners, and he just would talk like this all the time. And he would say, I went out and bought batteries the other day. They weren't included. Some of you, I had to go buy him again. That was his kind of humor. And he said, the guy who wrote the alphabet wrote every word in the English language. And believe it or not, that is kind of what he's saying here. He is speaking of the alphabet being the source of all the words. He's saying that God possesses the perfect exhaustive knowledge of everything that can be known. If it can be known, God knows it. I don't say God knows everything because God does not know guilt of sin. Some of you think He does, evidently. God does not know what it feels like to have guilt of sin. God does not know what it's like to lie. That's not Him. So I don't say God knows everything, but everything that can be known God absolutely, exhaustively knows that. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Um, It doesn't say He had a beginning and He has an end. He is the beginning and He is the end. What He's saying is that everything that begins to exist finds its origin in Him, and everything that will have a conclusion will have its conclusion in Him. It is speaking of the eternal nature of God. He had no beginning of days. He has no end of days. He is the all-present One. He is in all places at all times. The eternal, almighty God. He is the Lord. He says, says the Lord here, but He's calling Himself the Lord. He's not just the Savior of the world. He is the Lord of all of Christ creation everything and everyone that has ever existed exists now or ever will exist is under the authority of the Lord of Lords it doesn't matter whether people acknowledge him or not he is still the Lord you know those people that say never my president you know not my president okay that may that might make them feel better but they're still under the authority of the President of the United States of America, and all they have to do is go out and break the law to see it. Okay? You can make that declaration all you want to. He is still the President, and you can say, I don't believe in God. You're still under His authority. He is the Lord. He is the One who is, who was, and who is to come. That's another way of saying that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is speaking of the unchangeable, faithful character of God. There's no shadow of turning in Him. He is uh, forever who He has always been and will always be. And then finally, He is the Almighty. Do you remember what Jesus said before He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, He said, all power and all authority has been given unto Me. It's speaking of His omnipotence. Jesus is the omnipotent Almighty God. Nothing and no one can stand against Him. No one can resist Him. No one can stop Him. Does man have free will? Absolutely. And man can freely rebel against Almighty God, but they can't stop the fact that one day they're going to stand before Him and when He casts them into an eternal hell, they cannot stop that act. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. And when He sets these things that we're going to read about in this study into motion, once He sets them into motion, He will direct them, He will move them, and no one will stop them from being accomplished. He is the Almighty God. That is a preview of everything that's coming in these next 22 chapters. Now having given us that trailer, if you will, John is now going to set out to show us the occasion on which this vision was given to him. We're going to read about it here in verses 9-11. through Let's read it. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the Word of God, and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia." Uh, Asia is not Asia as we know it today. It's modern-day Turkey. And those seven churches are to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, and to Laodicea. Now, I'm not going to get through all of those verses tonight. We're just going to get through really through verse 9. I'm going to touch very quickly on verse 10 and then we'll be done for tonight. But what I want you to see is that after identifying himself again as the author, John refuses any title in order to try and impress someone and simply refers to himself as both your brother and and companion remember john was the most beloved disciple of jesus christ we know that we know that the three that were closest to jesus were peter james and john and the one who was the closest was john himself so close so intimate was he to christ that even at the last supper he lays his head up against his shoulder and his chest there's a deep relationship that John has with Jesus and yet he does not on the Isle of Patmos refer to himself as that or try to try to seek to exploit that he simply refers to himself as brother and companion I love that maybe after 90 years he came to realize that titles don't mean anything it's your testimony Can I tell you, you will never be remembered for your title, but you'll always be remembered for your testimony. People will never remember the office that you had, but they will never forget the testimony that you carried in your heart for Jesus Christ and so he just simply refers to himself as brother and companion. Brother is just a reference to the family of God which is clearly seen all throughout the New Testament and I still don't know that we understand the significance of that. We have God as the father. We have the the saints as the bride of Christ and Jesus as the bridegroom. We have an image that we'll see in Revelation of the marriage supper of the Lamb where there is this great reception after the final consummation, if you will, of the bride with the groom. And then you have within the church. Um, there is to be uh, a brother and sister relationship with one another. Those of us who are younger, to look up to the older in our church and treat them as mothers and fathers. And the older among us are to look down at the younger as sons and daughters. Um, we are seen as being adopted into the family of God. And we are heirs of the Father and join heirs with the Son. I'm going to tell you, if If you have a mixed up and twisted understanding of family, you need to pray for God to deliver you of that because we are the family of Almighty God and we're to operate as a family. And here is John who could make something of himself but instead just says, hey, I'm your brother in Christ. Turn to your neighbor and tell him we're just brothers and sisters. We're brothers and brothers. Whoever you're sitting by, okay. But we're all family Jesus' name. The word companion, though, is important because companion, um, it's a a very intimate word. It actually is a compound word made up of two Greek words. The first word means fellowship and the other word means with. Um, In other words, our fellowship is with these things. It's, It's the idea that we hold something in common. Now, I look around here today and, you know, some of us are as far removed from the others as you could possibly imagine, but there are some things that we all have in common. And that's what John is saying. John's saying, listen, I may have been very, very, very close to Jesus, but I'm going to tell you there's something we're all sharing in common, and we share these things in common as well. And he tells us right there, in the tribulation... That's one. There's not, there's not just one thing here. There's three things here. We're, we're companions in the tribulation. We're companions in the kingdom. And we are, uh, we're companions in the patience of Jesus Christ. Three things he speaks of. First of all, he says, we're companions in tribulation. That can really throw you, especially if you have the New King James Version. I, don't, I didn't look at what it meant in all the other translations or how it was translated. But in the New King James, it says, in the tribulation. It could give you the idea that He was going through the great tribulation. That is not what He's saying. The, the better translation would be suffering. He says we're sharing in the same trials. We're we're companions in the same sufferings. The same persecutions, basically, is what he's saying. He's talking about the universal suffering that is experienced by all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul made it clear. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted will which really does make you wonder if we're not experiencing <laughs> persecution then maybe it's because we're not drive uh, we're not driven to live godly in Christ Jesus just a thought Maybe the lack of persecution is actually a demonstration of our lack of commitment to true godly behavior. We'll pick very surface godly attitudes, but I wonder when we're all alone just how committed to godly living we really are. And so what Paul, or excuse me, what John is saying here is, "I'm your brother in this. The fact that I am an apostle has not insulated me from the same suffering that you are experiencing." You've got to remember that by the end of the first century, Christianity was hated all throughout the Roman Empire, hated. Politically, Christians were hated because they refused to recognize Caesar as the supreme authority. Religiously, Christians were hated because they rejected the pantheon of gods that were worshipped in Rome and within the Roman Empire. In fact, you might find it interesting that, uh, that Christians were actually considered atheists in that day because they believed in all of their gods and all of their idols, but Christians believed in an invisible God that they could not hold and touch and put in their homes. So Christians were considered atheists of that day. Socially, Christians were hated because they rejected the hierarchical view of man that some men and women were better than others and there were others that needed to be subjected to the authority of others. Christians said, no, we're all created in the image of Almighty God and they should all be treated with that respect. And so they were hated socially. Um, They were hated economically, believe it or not because Christians were perceived as a threat. Because the more men and women received Jesus Christ, the more they left Curious arts and idolatry and idolatrous worship. So they were no longer buying the idols. They were no longer going to the temples where they would worship those idols. And if you want to see a, a, a picture of that, just go home tonight and read Acts 19 because as the Ephesians started coming to Jesus Christ, they began, the silversmiths and the goldsmiths that were making all of these idols, they went to the town leaders and said, Look, you can't allow these Christians to keep preaching their message because we're not making any money anymore. They're not buying the idols anymore. They're not buying the incense. They're not buying anything that's offered up to these idols. So even Christians were being blamed for the lack of economy. And you know what? It's interesting news. I was studying this today. Environmentally, Christians were hated. They were perceived as a threat because Christians would not worship the gods that the Romans believed were responsible for natural disasters. You've seen movies of this and you've read how they believed that this god controlled the tidal waves and and controlled the earthquakes. And so they had to appease those gods so those natural disasters wouldn't take place. Well, Christians wouldn't do that. And so they said, you're putting us at risk for natural disasters. Anybody see any parallels here? Because by and large, Christians don't buy into the environmental things. Don't believe. I mean, I, I believe that the, the, the globe is warming. I believe in climate change. But how do you measure how much impact man has actually had on that? And like I've told you before, you know, please don't sweat floods <laughs> and, and thinking that somehow the polar ice caps are going to melt and we're all going to be underwater one day. You ever looked up and seen a rainbow? I mean, the rainbow tells us that God is never going to judge us with floods again. I mean, you have to sweat it. Look at, look at how we're hated politically. Look at how we're hated socially because of the stands that we take on relationships and marriage and gender and sex it's the same thing we haven't reached that level that they did then but that you can see these things that's why on Sunday morning I'm saying listen we're going to pray for the best but we better be prepared for the worst because Rome's happening again right before our very eyes now, there was a general hatred that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire, but persecution became more widespread under Nero because remember, Nero burned three-quarters of Rome to the ground and then blamed it on the Christians. But it wasn't until Domitian came 30 years later that it became lethal. Domitian was a cruel man. Even the Apostle John was not immune to that persecution, but was actually sharing in it with them. And the significance of that, folks, listen, we all go through difficult times. And I'm so tired of Christians that bail out of church when difficult times come. You know, I hear that all the time. Where have you been for the last three months? Oh, I'm going through some stuff. And you thought staying home was the answer to that. You know, I just and, and we all want to pretend like we never go through anything. John, the beloved disciple of Christ, said, hey, I'm going through the same thing you are. And I want to show you that God met me in the darkest moment of my life. And all of us need to say, hey, we've been through some things. We've been through some hurt. We've been through some heartache. But God saw me through it. And the God who saw me through it is going to see you through it as well. In Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? That is how God intended it to be. Then he says that we are companions in the kingdom. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time here, but uh, he he just says in spite of the tribulations that we're all experiencing, we still share in our hearts the kingdom of Almighty God. You know, you can be going through the darkest season in your life, but the kingdom of God is still reigning within your heart. Remember what Paul said in Acts 14 and 22. He says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, Till this point, the kingdom of God suffers violence, but the violent take it by force. And, And again, he's not advocating violence. What he's saying is it takes a violent attitude to press through the resistance you receive as a believer to lay hold of the kingdom of God. So we understand that it is through trials, it is through temptations, it is through tribulations we enter in to the kingdom of Almighty God. And then thirdly, he says we share in the patience of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember this, but a couple of weeks ago, On Sunday morning, I actually shared with you that that word patience is, again, a compound word. It's made up of two uh, individual Greek words. The first one meaning under and the other one meaning remain. And it's the idea that even though I'm under this, I'm not running, I remain. And so what John is saying here is even though I am under this Pressure, even though I am under this tribulation, I'm not going anywhere. Because it is through this pressure I enter in to the kingdom of Almighty God. And we are to share in it with Him. No matter what we're going through, you may be hard-pressed today, but you've got to remain. You've got to continue because it is through those tribulations we enter in to the kingdom of God. But I do like how he says it, the patience of Jesus Christ, because this patience was first modeled in Christ who remained steadfast even on the night that he was betrayed. He said that the hour of darkness has come, and yet he remained faithful on that night. He told us himself, I could call a legion of angels to deliver me from what's going on right now, but he refused and patiently endured that night and the crucifixion the next day. And then on the third day, He arose from the dead. And He did it so that you and I might be saved. And as He modeled it for us, we follow that example. We patiently endure even unto death, knowing in the end we win anyway. In Jesus' name. Can I hear a good amen? That's what He's saying. And all of this went down on the island of Patmos. Now many of you know that Patmos was a prison island. It was located about 40 miles off the coast of Miletus, which was close to Ephesus. And the significance of that is that um, Ephesus was where John was living at the time of his arrest. So he's 40 miles off the coast of, of, of Miletus, nearby Ephesus. Um, Patmos is 10 miles long. It's 6 miles wide. And it is set apart for the vilest offenders in the Roman Empire. John is in his 90s at this point. I, just, I, I, I think of my grandmother who just passed away. 94. She would have been 95 in January. I, I think of myself, that's right around where Paul was at that time. I think of my 95-year-old grandmother on this island He was a 94, 95-year-old man on this island of Patmos. He was sent there as a criminal of the state. And having been sent there as a criminal means that he would have been treated in the harshest manner possible. As I was studying it today, I, I discovered that a criminal on the Isle of Patmos would have experienced the most hard, the most intense labor imaginable, and it would all be under the watchful eye of a whip-wielding Roman soldier. who would have been ruthless. He would have only been given enough food to survive. Certainly not even enough to, to strengthen him. He would have just been given enough to prolong his life because they wanted to make it as miserable as they possibly could. They would not have given him enough clothes to really keep him sheltered, maybe only enough to keep him modest. He would sleep on the bare ground in his 90s, and any other man would have died under those conditions at 90 years old. You know what's really cool? He outlived Domitian who sent him there he would actually go back to Ephesus and outlive his his, uh, cruel taskmaster. And you know what his crime was? He tells us. He preached the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. For being faithful to the Word of God, standing up for the testimony of Jesus Christ, he was sentenced to this condition. Now, how many of you think you had a bad day? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like it just, And I'm not, I, I, I don't say that to minimize what you're going through because look, it is your bad day. But every once in a while when you think it's rough, just remember, this is where John was. This is what he went through. He faithfully taught the Word of God which was the testimony of Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament had concealed and given in shadows, the New Testament revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And then I love these words, and we're going to finish with this. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Hmm. I, I love that. And that's why you have, to, you have to paint such a dark picture to know that even the Spirit could cut through all of that to give a great blessing to Him. A small prison island filled with dread and pain and sorrow and death, became the very place that God showed John the most extensive prophecy concerning the last days that is recorded in the Word of God. This is the shortest, if you really will. I mean, uh, compared to some of the prophecies you find in Isaiah and in Zechariah and others, but, but none is more detailed. It's, it's an amazing detailed it would be equivalent to one that that Daniel gave there's no doubt about it but it was on this island filled with pain that it was given to him and i just want to leave you with that thought tonight what conditions do you find yourself in today some of you find yourself on an island of brokenness an island of pain an island of broken marriage an island of you know broken relationship with your children uh, an island of sickness, I don't know. But all of us find ourselves sometime, somewhere where we don't want to be. But you know what I found? Is that if we learn to embrace it, learn to share our burdens with one another and patiently endure, you might find that it's the very place that God will do a greater work in your life than you ever thought possible in Jesus' mighty name. Isn't it amazing that some of the greatest individual moments with god recorded in scripture came in the most difficult seasons of life and we as whining western christians are always wanting to get out of our pain and god's like that's where i tend to move the greatest it's like i've always said everybody wants a healing nobody wants to get sick everybody wants a miracle nobody wants to be in a miracle Um, in a situation that requires a miracle. And yet John said it was in these conditions the Spirit came. How many of you are thankful no man can stop the Spirit of God meeting you in your moment of need in Jesus' name? Father, thank You for these words tonight. This is why we just take our time and we go through these things and we don't feel like we have to cover so much material because we don't want to run so fast that we miss some of the beautiful gems that are here. It was in these conditions that John saw Jesus for who He is. And it should be a reminder to all of us that maybe the clearest picture of who Christ is comes when we're in the midst of tragedy when we're in the midst of difficulty. One old song that we used to sing in the church, if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. And I wouldn't know what faith in God could do. So Lord help us to be men and women who embrace even the difficult seasons in life knowing that in them you tend to shine the brightest. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Love you, everybody. Have a wonderful evening. We will see you on Sunday, the Lord willing. God bless.